Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 66. I am your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we are excited to have back with us the award-winning artist, historian, cartoonist, and educator, Robert Burnell Jr. Robert, thank you for joining us again. This is, uh, I, I just checked uh, I checked the list. You were episode four last year, and now- Yeah, I got on the ground floor, yeah. Yeah, you're right there, right on the- Right, one of the like one of the big heavy hitters I had coming in right at the beginning. So, <laughs> where do you find all these other people? That's what I want. <laughs> I should have you on every week. We have plenty of things to talk about, and we and that and uh, when I reached out to you, I think it was I think when we were, we were communicating a couple of months ago, saying, "Hey, let's you know get back on," and and we we mentioned there was a lot of there was a lot of topics we didn't get to get get to last year, and and we thought maybe it would be a it would be a good thing to kind of concentrate this episode and, and just really um, hammer home on some of uh, doing a kind of a deep dive on the history of political cartoons. And um, as, as a retired teacher that you are, you came prepared and you sent me a lot of images in advance and um, we're excited to jump right into it. And be, before we be kind quiz, of, so <laughs> <laughs> um, did real Robert, real quick, in case somebody hasn't really gone through the archives and checked out my the issue um, issue of episode four, uh, do you want to give people kind of a brief uh, brief background on how you got into um, uh, not to get into to, to the the deluge of all your types of art you do sculptures and fine art and painting and teaching, but but where did your passion of of the cartooning history come from? And then we can dive in and talk about the political cartoons. Well. Um... Cartoons had a huge influence on my youth. Um, I was less interested in comic books, but I loved newspaper strips. Mm -hmm. I loved to read the Sunday funnies. And I'm 62, so when I was a kid back in the 60s, um, it was the tail end of the golden era of newspaper strips. A lot of the early strips uh, were just reaching the end of their lifespan. So I was lucky enough to see things like Little Orphan Annie and... Mm -hmm. um, Buzz Sawyer and you know all those great strips that had their heyday back in the 20s and 30s and 40s bringing up father and so forth and then I was there for the transition into the new cartoons like Wizard of Id and Broomhilda and all those <clears throat> so I just loved that stuff and I got my start as an artist really by just sitting down and copying cartoon characters and trying to come up with my own and when I was an art teacher I realized that drawing cartoons was a tremendous way to introduce every art concept to kids. Mm. You know, perspective, form, composition, color. And cartoons are non-threatening because they can be extremely simple. You know, you don't necessarily have to have tremendous artistic ability to draw a cartoon. Gary Larson. <laughs> <laughs> but you can still make tremendous cartoons, you know, so it was it worked out well. <laughs> All right, Gary, Lar Gary Larson just commented. He said, leave me alone. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, he can afford to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And so it's a non-threatening way to get into art in general. Right. And and so in, in, one, in, one, in one of the situations that you mem I remember we were, uh, you know, and I remember last year when we were talking about political cartoons in particular, you're, you're mentioning the, the brevity of life of 
political cartoons and how that is kind of its own genre altogether when it comes to the Sunday morning funnies. In fact, that you mentioned last year, it's actually in a different part of the newspaper. It's never really in there. So, uh, and you itself, and we'll and we'll pull up some images later and later in the show about some of the. You actually also have um, a cartoon that that's that's out that is called you know Mr. Burnell explains it all that actually um, has a lot of uh, not every not every comic strip has a has a is is a political cartoon but I would say well over fifty percent of it is and and we'll we'll talk about you know, the difference between some of your ones that are more evergreen as compared to the, your political cartoons on how that is. But take us back when we talked about it last year, about how the, the beginning of cartoon came about the, how was political cartooning the first gave birth to cartoons or comic strips or did, did, did political cartoons come after the birth of the comic strip? No, actually, uh, political cartoons are the oldest form of cartooning. Okay. In fact, uh, long before there were uh, comic books or comic strips or anything like that, there were political cartoons. In fact, uh, archaeologists have discovered political cartoons scratched on the walls of ancient Roman ruins. Really? Graffiti, where people were making fun of the local politicians. And in the Middle Ages, they had uh, broadsides they would paste to the sides of walls complaining about this or that or the other thing. But the political cartoon as we know it today really came into its own in the 18th century, the 1700s, because that's when the newspaper and the magazine came to the fore. So now you have a venue for the political cartoons. But yeah, political cartoons, people have been complaining about politicians since time immemorial. Since <laughs> politicians. Yeah, it's, it's since politicians. So yeah, I'm sure ancient Greek, when they invented democracy, the next day there was a political cartoonist <laughs> inscribing something on, on, the, on a pillar somewhere about how much he hated the local yeah. guy. What's up with this guy? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they've been around forever and ever. And the other thing that's unique about political cartoons is unlike other genres, political cartoons actually have a real effect on the real world. Hmm. They change politics. They bring down tyrants. They form public opinion. They influence events. And sometimes they lead to tragedy, as we'll talk about later. So right. the political cartoon, unlike uh, other cartoons, uh, political cartoons actually put their life on the line in some countries. You know, they can be arrested and killed or put in jail. For what they do, and like, it's been that that, like a few years ago with that Charlie Hebdo. That would have been a yes. good example of that. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, and politicians really, <laughs> they they pay close attention to what the editorial cartoonists are saying about them, because they do exert a tremendous influence on the public. Maybe not so much today, with the death of the newspaper, but say mid twentieth century. 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, if you were Lyndon Johnson or Nixon, you know, you'd pay very close attention to what the editorial cartoonists were saying about you. Right. So talk to us a bit about, we have some images that we, uh, that, that we've queued up. Uh, so as early as uh, the, the, the earliest, the earliest one that were, that you wanted to, you wanted to talk about, would that be, we're looking at maybe James Gilray. Was that the earliest one? Oh, the early one. Let's look at uh, the Paul Revere one. Okay. All right. 
we've all seen this picture in our high school textbooks, you know, and we think it's a it's an actual a factual drawing of the what's happening, but it isn't. This is a political cartoon. Okay. And it's a pure propaganda. The actual event, what happened was a small group of um, British soldiers were attacked by a huge mob of, of colonials who were throwing rocks and snowballs at them and so forth. And they were in fear for their lives. But Paul Revere twists the whole thing around so it makes it look like these cold-hearted British soldiers are mowing down these poor, helpless um, colonials. Oh, wow. And this print went all over the place. And it's one of the things that led to the Revolutionary War, actually. It is so inflamed public passion. So this is an early example of the power of the political cartoon, for good or ill, or for its ability to sway public opinion. Wow. <clears throat> and that was, and and so that was one of the first, as you said, Paul Revere, he's the one that actually produced that in his own newspaper. Yeah, yeah. in fact, he produced several images of it. An interesting note, one of the first casualties of the Revolutionary War was a freed slave African-American named Crispus uh, Atticus. Mm. And in the first version of that print, Revere puts him in, but the second version of the print, he takes him out. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, he does all kinds of little tricks like that. Um, notice he has the British all lined up in a row, like they plan right. to do this, which is not what happened at all. So, wow. yeah. Okay. <laughs> And and so that's basically so compared to you know compared to that as as um, and this is a good example of as that you said earlier is how political cartoons can sway sway public because one thing and I remember we might I, I don't want to jump ahead but I remember one thing that we we're talking about last year was about you know uh, uh, Boss Tweed as an example of um, that famous quote you told us last year I don't did you want to is are we oh, jumping around or is we want to go someplace else first? Uh, we will say, yeah, we'll talk about Boss Tweed in a little bit. But the point here is that a picture yeah. really is worth a thousand words. Right. You know, Paul Revere summed up in that one image so many different ideas. If this had been converted into text, you know, it would have been paragraphic paragraph. Nobody would plow through all that. But they'll look at this picture. To, oh, my God. You know, the, the British are killing us. Let's go to war. <laughs> Which is one of the things a political cartoonist has to do is to distill a lot of thought into a, one or two panels, you know, a few panels. You got to get your point across because the average reader is going to look at it for maybe 10 seconds. If you're writing it, if there's dialogue, like in my cartoons, you have it's all about paring it down, paring it down, paring it down. How can I pack a maximum of thought into a minimum of words? Right. I think I said last time we chatted, it's like writing haiku poetry, you know, in strict form. I spend twice as long writing my cartoons as I do drawing. <laughs> and no matter how well I proofread it, when I post it, somebody will say, oh, you forgot that, or you misspelled that. <laughs> I'm the world's worst proofreader. <laughs> I apologize ahead of time. You know, I'm not insulted if you post and say, you forgot the word the in the second panel. <laughs> I don't know why. I just can't see it. <laughs> so that next image, did you want to pull up that James Gilray? Would yeah, that be the let's next talk one? about that. Yeah. Okay. So 
so what do we see here? We see uh, this, this is, is also Napole famous one. This is during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, this was came out in 1805. And one of the things I like about the British were the best political cartoonists of the 18th and even 19th century. And they're the most savage caricaturists. Nobody can caricature somebody the way the British do. So on the left here, we see um, William Pitt, who's the um, the uh, prime minister. And on the right, we see little little tiny Napoleon. And they're carving up the world between them <laughs> using their swords. It's Plum Pudding is the name of this cartoon. Okay. But what I love... <laughs> love about this cartoon is just the facial expressions, especially on Napoleon. He looks like a maniac. And I love the hats. <laughs> These incredibly ridiculous hats. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, th this, this painting, uh, excuse me, this uh, drawing was made almost 200 years ago, actually over 200 years ago. And it's, you know, it's still just as silly and humorous today. So, that's amazing. And so and this this would be an example of this would be an example of a a way that how did how did this change the how did this change the um the sway of the general public? What was the purpose of that one to be? Well, they were trying to uh, uh drum up support for the anti-Napoleon, you know, Napoleonic wars. They were trying to point out that uh, Napoleon's this madman who wants the whole all of Europe to to himself. Uh, William Pitt only gets a little bit of the British Isles, and Napoleon takes half the world. So, yeah, it's the government trying to drum up support for the war, basically. Uh, okay, right, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, uh, one of our, our previous guests, Stephanie, just said this is fascinating. So, yeah, oh, thank good. you, Stephanie. Hi, yeah. Stephanie. <laughs> I'm glad you like. Um, and 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 next, did you want to so? So, so we looked at James, we looked at kind of like the, the early 18th, you know, like, well, the, the 19th century. Um, Let's talk about Dovier. He's my favorite. Let's put up uh, the pears, the poor. The, okay. All right. Poor. Yeah. Honoré Dovier is one of my favorite artists. Uh, when I first encountered him in college, one of the things I loved about him was he was a premier painter, but he was also a tremendous cartoonist. So this gave me courage that I could do both. I could be a painter and a cartoonist at the same time. <laughs> and he was always getting into trouble with the king. This is the king, uh, Louis-Philippe. And um, this is actually a response to a previous cartoon he had drawn in which he showed the king's face looking like a pear. And the king was so mad about that. Rather than apologize, Domir doubles down and makes <laughs> Cartoon, which he shows step by step how he turned the king into a pear. And this cartoon also is historically significant because it's one of the first examples of a four-panel cartoon. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And the king was so mad about this that um, <clears throat> he threatened to throw Domir into jail. <laughs> <laughs> so if we go to the next Domier one, Gargantua. Okay. Oh, right here, yeah. Yeah. Now, this is 1831. He really doubles down. This is the king sitting on a toilet. Oh, geez. And yeah. these people are bringing sacks of gold up for him to eat. Meanwhile, he's excreting uh, documents that make people into aristocrats. I forget what they call them in French. Hmm. So the, the point, of course, is that if you bribe the king enough he'll make you a nobility uh this so enraged the king that he actually had domir thrown in jail in 1832 for six oh, months wow. 
Oh, geez. <laughs> and <laughs> and so, so think, you think today's cartoons uh, get away with you know a lot? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think a modern cartoonist could draw a picture of a politician sitting on a toilet. There was a lot, yeah. There's, I mean, there, like the actual, like you know, um, explicit incitement that you know, historically speaking, that political cartoons would do is fascinating. Did you want to talk about the the mass the the, the third Domier picture? We yeah, have? let's talk about that one. Okay. Now this one's extremely tragic. This is called the massacre um, by Henri, 1834. What happened was there were some protesters in the streets of Paris, protesting uh, the latest policies, and the police brutally put down the protest in, to the point where the police actually went into people's homes and killed them. Wow. So this is the family, uh, a man, his wife, and they look under the man, you'll see a small child yeah. and the grandfather over on the side. <coughs> the this police had just come in. So this is horrific police brutality. This cartoon so enraged the police that they confiscated every print they could find and they confiscated the lithographic stone that it was made on. Wow. And a year later, they used it to justify shutting down freedom of the press in France. Wow. So, um, but this is a perfect example of what a political cartoon is supposed to do, which is speak truth to power. Right. Call people out when they do bad things, you know, sort of be the conscious uh, consciousness of the, of the state. Hmm. And do you see, so this is a good example of like, we've, we've seen a lot of, um, a lot of excitement over in, in 2020 about freedom of the press and, and, and these, and, and, police brutality and things that might be happening. This is not new, basically. <laughs> no. no, no, no. Uh, most of the issues we are grappling with today <laughs> have been with us for a long, long time. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you want to talk about the Lincoln one next. I, um, okay. Um, and that one I have is the, oh, this one right here. Yeah. Yes. We think of Lincoln as being a hero today, but in his own day, he was reviled by a lot of people. And the cartoonists of the day really had fun making fun of him. What's odd about this cartoon actually is it, it was made by a British cartoonist, John Tenniel, who later went on to fame as the illustrator of the Alice in Wonderland books. Oh, okay. But he did this for Punch. It's called Abe Lincoln's Last Card. And what it refers to is the Emancipation Proclamation, which a lot of people felt was Lincoln's desperate attempt to win the war, sort of like his last resort. Mm. But if we study this image, there's a lot of fascinating things. One thing, notice that Lincoln's hair looks like devil horns. Right. And Lincoln is drawn kind of paunchy, like he's not really ready for uh, war. And look at the expression on his face. And the card that he's holding is a black spade, mm. which is a not too subtle reference to uh, African-American slaves. Yeah. And it's from this cartoon that we get the phrase playing the race card. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Huh. Okay. And what, what, what's the significance of like, who is he playing against? And in, in he's significance... playing against a Confederate soldier. Okay. Because you see, um, the rest of the world didn't necessarily see the Confederates as the bad guys. Really? Yeah. They, uh, they didn't really have a preference. You know, they, they thought it was uh, fascinating this war was happening, but 
some countries backed the Confederacy and some countries backed the Union, but um, but mostly it was for uh, monetary reasons. They didn't really have a a moral stake in abolishing slavery or anything like that. Countries that were dependent on the cotton that came from the South backed the South, and countries that traded a lot with the Union factories backed the Union. So, go ahead. I was going to say, what's the what's the significance of the the gunpowder? Well, that the explosive uh, situation, you know, the war itself was about to to happen. Notice that the uh, Confederate officer looks fairly well dressed and put together, where Lincoln looks kind of disheveled there, especially the way his boots are splayed out and everything. Right. I, I love the expression on Lincoln's face too. He looks <laughs> furious. <laughs> So how how long after that? I'm kind of curious though. It's like how how long post Civil War did 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 Lincoln uh, have a favorable view on his in, through in history? Then, well, him being assassinated actually turned public opinion and made him into sort of a martyr. Wow. Okay. So his funeral uh, uh, lasted twenty days, and the whole procession on the train where he went through all these towns so people could see him, and then being laid out in the Capitol and so forth. So that's when the Lincoln as the saint <laughs> idea started to uh, gain momentum. But it really wasn't until the early years of the 20th century when, when the last of the Civil War uh, veterans began to die off and, right. the and the memory of the war began to fade from public, from living memory that um, people began to... Uh, make him into the icon he is now. They didn't put him on the money until the 1930s, I don't think. Okay, wow. And 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 I yeah, and I remember it's like my uh uh my 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 grandfather when he was talking about when he came back out of uh you know World War II and he would be a part of the procession of, you know, Independence Day parades and he would st he still remembered seeing Civil War veterans. Um you know, part of the prayer, they had this, you know, civil war, and then you had, and it, it kind of went out, went all up through. And then there was when, you know, he remember when he was marching, he was, you know, he first was the last ones, but then, you know, with the Korean war soldiers, it's, he said, it was amazing. It's like the, it's like just historically, not only did you see like the difference in uniforms, but just like difference in height. <laughs> like it was, he thought he found that fascinating too. I once yeah. had a jacket worn by a union soldier uh, and it was tiny. <laughs> um, it was very disintegrated, so I couldn't save it. But I saved the buttons and the lapel. But it was from a Vermont regiment, yeah. and uh, yeah, they were they were quite small. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to Fort Ticonderoga and look at the uniforms worn by the Revolutionary War soldiers, they look like they were children. Wow, I mean, they're extremely tiny compared to modern. <laughs> <laughs> That's what nutrition does for you. Yeah. <laughs> Once they started pasteurizing cheese, that's just that everything just went out of the window. Well, yeah. Washington was six feet tall and everyone thought he was a giant. <laughs> and so Lincoln was taller than that. He was, I forgot, like six four or something like that. Right. There was another famous cartoon. I don't have an example of it, but the cartoonist draws Lincoln as this really tall, slender figure. And the, the joke is long Abe a little longer <laughs> about his reelection. <laughs> <laughs> So, so next, do we do we have? Uh, would it be Grover Cleveland? Is what we want to yeah. look at next? Okay, here we go. Grover Cleveland, poor guy. He uh, 
fathered a child out of wedlock, and that's what this cartoon refers to, and it threatened to disrupt his campaign. Uh, you see a, <coughs> a little tag coming off his coat, says Grover the Good, and the, the baby, so I want my pa. <laughs> and there was a, a poem that circulated at the time saying, Ma, Ma, where's Pa gone to the White House? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so there's nothing new about uh, presidential indiscretions either. <laughs> no, I think that's been... Yeah, it's just, it's it's fascinating, Robert, to see the to to see that we're, as you said, nothing. Every it's basically this past four years or whatever we've actually just taken all of the excitement of the past two hundred years in political cartooning and put it into a um, condensed it into a little tiny ball <laughs> to a TikTok video. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> And and, uh, and so and so the next one we have uh, the the next one up here is would it would it be uh, what's the Robert Miner is that the next one no uh, the Boss Tweed one if you want to get into that I oh I, yes this this was a I actually ended up watching uh, and because of your because of your recommendation last year after our interview last year on episode four you 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 talked about this you talked about mm -hmm. Boss Tweed and how this kind of changed everything. Um, that the, the political cartoon did. And I, I found it fat. I found it. So I, I really enjoyed learning more about more, learning more about boss tweed and what he did and, and how, mm -hmm. and what, and I, and I think I'll let you do the quote that you said last year for, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm cutting you off. So I'll let you talk about this. Oh, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, this is by Thomas Nast, who was, one of the greatest cartoonists of the 19th century, probably one of the greatest ones in American history. This was made in 1876. Wow. Nast invented a lot of the visual vocabulary that cartoonists still use today. For instance, he invented the Republican elephant. Mm -hmm. And he popularized, he didn't invent, but he popularized the Democratic donkey, which had gone back to the 1840s. He also invented our modern idea of what Uncle Sam looks like the tall guy with the beard and the hat. And he invented the money bag symbol, you know, for money and, and a whole bunch of other things. He's probably best remembered today for his attacks on Boss Tweed, who's that fat guy on the left hand holding the hat in his hand. He's got a big diamond stick pin. He's got a beard. Yeah. And <clears throat> Boss Tweed ran Tammany Hall, which was the democratic political machine of New York City. And he was notoriously corrupt. Um, the fellow with the glasses on the right is the mayor of New York City at the time. And they're all pointing to each other in a circle. It was him. He was the corrupt one. <laughs> and they're going all around in the circle. Um, Nast attacked Tweed mercilessly for his corruption and so forth. And Tweed famously said, I don't care what they write about me because my constituents can't read, but those damn pictures are going to get me. <laughs> And he was right. Uh, Nast made it so hot for him that he had to abscond to South America. He thought he was safe, but a South American recognized him from Thomas Nast cartoons. <laughs> and that led to him being extradited back to America, where he eventually fell from power. So, so yeah. Go ahead. I, I want to ask you, this is kind of like the, the theme through all this. I'm, I'm really curious. Um, we see the pictures and we see the subject, but there are the cartoonists behind it. And is it, 
mandatory for a political cartoonist to be political or can you just be um observational i guess well <laughs> every political cartoonist has a point of view right um some hide their point of view better than others i myself try to be relatively neutral i go after both sides if they do something stupid right it just so happens that in recent years, <laughs> some people have done more stupid things than others. You know, I can't help that. <laughs> but um, also, uh, something we haven't talked about, but when we get into, um, when we talk about uh, Windsor McKay, in the olden days, political cartoonists didn't have the freedom they do today because the editors told them what to do. Oh, okay. Or the publishers. And in fact, <clears throat> we can skip right it. Let's talk about uh, because it segues nicely into my Windsor McKay one, the war. Okay. Yeah. This yeah. one? Yeah. Windsor McKay was one of the great cartoonists. He created Little Nemo in Slumberland. He was a pioneer in animation. Um, he did Gertie the Dinosaur and so forth. In those days, uh, the newspapers in America were owned by two gigantic um, syndicates. One was the Hearst Empire, William Randolph Hearst, and the other was the Pulitzer, Joseph Pulitzer. Okay. Between them, they pretty much owned every newspaper in America. And Hearst, uh, McKay worked for Hearst, and Hearst didn't like the fact that McKay had this side gig of doing animation and everything. So in his later years of his career, uh, Hearst forced McKay to do political cartoons, even though the content of those cartoons didn't necessarily reflect McKay's worldview. They reflected William Randolph Hearst's worldview. Oh, okay. And this cartoon, uh, it's an anti-war cartoon from the First World War era, 1917. It's quite poignant. And like everything McKay did, it's beautifully drawn. Right. But Hearst didn't want America to get involved in the war. And so this is sort of an anti-war cartoon. There's some really tragic images that McKay drew, uh, anti-immigration cartoons, where we see Uncle Sam shoveling the immigrants onto a steamship. Right. You know, brutal by modern standards, but that's what Hearst wanted. And McKay uh, had to go along with the program. Right. But, okay, getting back to your other question, can the cartoonists have a point of view? Yes, they, they do. Um, in modern times, it's the cartoonist's point of view more than the editor's point of view. But it becomes self-selecting. If you're a, a left-wing cartoonist, your stuff's going to appear in left-wing publications more than it's going to appear in right-wing publications and vice versa. So cartoonists tend to gravitate towards um, the venue that's most accepting of their point of view and, and do you find that as we mentioned you know with with uh with so many polarizing ways that people can access their you know access their uh, uh confirmation bias basically do you feel that the because of this political cartooning isn't as um isn't as influential as it was say 20 30 years ago yeah it's hard to say um Probably it's becoming more in little info bubbles. Right. I think just like the old days where there was three networks giving you the news, 
and everybody watched the same news. Yeah. So somebody like Walter Cronkite could sway public opinion across the country. Right. Those days are gone. And I think the same is going to be true for editorial cartoons. So like you said, if you are a left winger, you're only going to see left wing cartoons. And if you're right, winger, you're only going to see right wing cartoons. So there's less chance nowadays, I think, of cartoonists changing anybody's mind. And this, that's kind of sad, really, but. Right, because there it's you're just you're creating your own echo chamber because you, you know, the people yeah. that want to watch it, they, yeah. I think we're falling into that same trap that um, everyone else is, and I don't know a way around that. I but myself it, try to remain neutral, and I right. try to keep them funny enough so that even if you don't agree with me, you might get a chuckle out of it. Maybe this will make you think a little bit about what I'm trying to say. Right. What would what is what would one strategy be if if you know if if you're an, if an editorial or political cartoonist would um, maybe infiltrate mainstream things with insinuations and mainstream cartooning maybe or well or that take away from the point of making political cartoons some cartoonists are able to straddle the line between political commentary and entertainment like Doonesbury. Right. Gary Trudeau. Some of his cartoons are very political. Others are not. Some are just wry commentaries about modern trends and things that are going on in the world. Some of them are very much, you know, anti the president or whatever. Right. Which means sometimes newspaper editors don't know what to do with them. They'll put them in with the newspaper comic strips or they'll put them on the editorial page. And so, and some will refuse to print him at all because they don't like what he said. Right. So, yeah. But they're, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so what's the Robert Miner picture? Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. This is one of my personal favorites. This is called, At Last, The Perfect Soldier. <laughs> and <laughs> Robert Miner was a left-wing socialist. In fact, he was an outspoken member of the American Communist Party. He drew this in 1917 uh, for a left-wing magazine called The Masses. And it really annoyed the government because um, they were trying to drum up support for the war. Mm. And here he is, you know, pointing out how awful war is and implying that you were stupid if you signed up to be a soldier. So, um, this cartoon led to the closing down of the magazine, The Masses. Really? Yes. Wow. But okay. it, it was uh, highly influential, and it's been reproduced many times. As a matter of fact, during World War II, it was resurrected by other left-wing publications. Okay. But it's a, it's a great cartoon. <laughs> this big hulking brute with no head. No. <laughs> I recognize Miner's work. Is he didn't didn't he do stuff in the New Yorker as well during that time? He uh, no, New Yorker came out in twenty five, so he he may have, but I don't think so. But his, you've probably seen variations of that cartoon because, okay. as I said, it was reproduced many times, and with slight variations for years okay. and years. All right, and. So that would so will that bring us um, up towards we're looking at now in the uh, well, Doctor Seuss. That yes. would be the next one coming up. Let's right? look at Doctor Seuss. Okay. 
before he became a beloved children's author, he was a political cartoonist. Okay. And this dates from 1941. And the target of his cartoon here was the isolationists in America who didn't want America to get involved in World War II. And so he was pointing out that, uh, you know, Hitler's a real threat here and we need to do something about it. Right. So um, what's interesting is he, he already had that kind of cute style. So there's kind of a, a um, disconnect between his drawing style and the seriousness of his message. <coughs> Excuse me, which is kind of interesting. Right. But he did a whole series of these. In fact, he... He did several parroting Mussolini and Hitler and so forth. And there's a book that just came out recently called Dr. Seuss Goes to War um, that uh, has this compilation of all these. Okay. And so this, yeah, this one seems to be pretty, yeah, pretty self-evident what he's, what he's saying here is like basically it was, which is interesting, you know, compare that to Miner's. Where minor was anti-war, saying don't go to war. Where this one right. is saying we need to go to war. So there you go. See, so here's, um, yeah, <laughs> they very definitely had different points of view here. Right, and one was from World War, as you say, that they they reproduced that minor one during World War Two. So you had two yeah. versions of um, a political cartoon saying we need to do something, and the other one says we need to mind our own business. So. Yeah. 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 Huh. Okay. Um, and would that take us to now uh, Her Block, the 1949? Yeah. yeah, let's look at that one. Okay. Herbert Block, who went by the pen name Her Block, was the greatest of the mid 20th century political cartoons. He was probably one of the last of the really influential political cartoons who really could change public opinion. This one was made in 1949. It's called uh, Fire. And we see the guy's uh, hysterical guy running up the ladder about to put out the torch of liberty. Um, this was a commentary on the Red Scare, the, okay. the Cold War paranoia about communists uh, taking over the country. And um, later on, we'll see an Oliphant cartoon that speaks to this cartoon because the problem is still with us. Mm. It's about people who are only too willing to put out civil liberties in exchange for security. Right. And does that go through also, we're talking about her block, uh, similar yeah. to this one then too. This is one where he, this this single cartoon was pretty much spelled the end for Joseph McCarthy. This was during the McCarthyism era, 1954. And um, McCarthy, as you know, was uh, going after supposed reds in the government and in the movie industry and so on and so forth. And it turned out a lot of his so-called evidence was completely fabricated. <laughs> so that's what this cartoon's about. Where McCarthy really got into trouble is when he went after the army. And he tried to show that there were higher-ups who were communists. And, of course, the army was having none of that. Right. So this cartoon really uh, brought down Joseph McCarthy. So here's this cartoon's a beautiful example of how a political cartoon can influence real-world events. And so, so McCarthy, he was, he was a Senator, right? And he was, he was tail gunner, Joe, Joseph McCarthy. He was from Wisconsin, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he, um, after world war two, <clears throat> when see during world war two, Stalin was our ally. 
But shortly thereafter, Winston Churchill created the Cold War because Winston Churchill was worried that if America and communist Russia became allies, that would spell the end of the British Empire and British domination of the world and European hegemony. So he did his famous Iron Curtain speech. Churchill invented the term Iron Curtain. And he said, there's an Iron Curtain descending across Europe and blah, blah, blah. And so this created hysteria about the communists taking over the world, and that led to the Cold War and the Berlin Wall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and so how long did McCarthyism then basically last? It was, so that was post-World War, that was, there was... It started after World War II, okay. and it went up into the mid-50s. And what, see, what happened, if we the backstory here, during the Depression, a lot of American intellectuals did become communists. They saw what was happening in the Russian Revolution and so forth under Lenin, and they thought that was a good alternative to what was happening in America with the, the fall of capitalism. So a lot of uh, writers and artists and Hollywood people did flirt, at least, with joining the Communist Party. Mm. But years later, after the war, they forgot about all that. You know, you know, patriotism, let's go to war, we got to defeat Hitler and fascism. But in the 50s, these, this came back to haunt them. Okay. A lot uh, because McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover began digging into the files of these people and said, yes, you were a member of the Communist Party. And so McCarthy kind of built his whole political career with the help of Roy Cohn and a young guy named Richard Nixon. Uh, they built their whole career on routing out the commies. People like Lucille Ball, for instance, they went after her. They went after a lot of people in Hollywood, Dalton Trumbo, you know, the endless list. In the beginning, some of it was legitimate. There were a few communists lurking in the shadows, but he couldn't stop. He just kept going and going and he got more and more desperate as he became more and more famous. And this all also dovetailed nicely with the rise of television. He was, he, because he did these hearings on TV, which was a novelty. So, and then of course we have the Korean War, which was all about fighting the commies, happening in 52, 51. Right. So it all came together in this uh, noxious stew of uh, paranoia. Wow. But America and, went through a uh, red scare in the 20s too. And, and this basically, as you said, this uh, political cartoons helped put an end to McCarthyism. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's amazing to think about how much influence and responsibility cartoonists have. It's, you know, when you're when you're able to, especially as you mentioned earlier, it wasn't up to the edit at this point in time in the fifties. Was it still? up to the editor to determine that or did Not the political cartoonists be able to do that in McK in Windsor McKay's day the editor actually told the cartoons what to draw right by Herblock's day he was pretty free but he still had to pass editorial muster right you know he had to submit it and the editor would say yay or nay you know um and did they was there so in the in, so in the forties and the fifties, when you actually had maybe one town newspaper or one regional newspaper, did the editor have did that did the editor have to um, acknowledge um, separate political point of views? Would there be like a 
or would their editorial section have something that was going one way and then another one going the other way? Or was it basically reflective of what the, the editor's own, the editor's own um, personal um, politics were? Well, yeah, it pretty much, it wasn't so much the editors as the publishers. Okay. The guy on top. Pretty much just like the Murdoch's uh, rule Fox News. Right. And the entire Fox News empire reflects Rupert Murdoch's point of view. Yeah. Well, that's the way it was in those days. You know, William Randolph Hearst and his successors had a certain point of view, and Pulitzer had a certain point of view. And so that filtered down, you know, the chief wants this to happen, you know. Now, in the days of syndication came along, where instead of working directly for the chain of newspapers, your work was syndicated by independent syndicators like King Features or something. What would happen then is if you're the editor of the small town newspaper, you'd look through the catalog of the syndicate of what was available, and you'd pick and choose the things that you thought your readers would like looking at. Right. So if you lived in a conservative area, you would only choose material that would appeal to conservatives and vice versa. Because it was it was good business. It was a good yeah. business to run a newspaper. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so the the uh, one of the more recent ones we have up here. Did you want to talk about the Pat Oliphant one? Yeah. All right. This is a uh, Pat Oliphant is sort of the successor of Herblock. Okay. In this cartoon, I chose it because it's very much like Herblock's one of fire, about the guy putting out the Statue of Liberty. Mm -hmm. This was uh, published right after nine um, eleven. Mm -hmm. And this little tiny kid says civil liberties. And the title is Watch Out for the Backswing Kid. This was when the Patriot was coming out, and there was controversy about government surveillance, but everyone was all panicky because of the attacks. You know, how much civil liberty are you willing to give up in order to be uh, secure? And that's what this uh, cartoon warns about that, you know. Sure, we want to be defended, but at the same time, we don't want to give up our civil liberties, our freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so on and so forth. Right. And um, one of my favorite quotes is by Oliphant. He said, um, if I couldn't be a cartoonist, I would have been an assassin. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a fellow who really did have a definite uh, point of view. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk a bit about uh, we got we got ten minutes left on the hour. So let's talk a bit about some of your work. So um, you have here uh, as an example of Mr. Burnell explains it all. So people, if they're interested in seeing this, you they can uh, they can go to your 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 website, but you also have them on uh, humor on Time. the web as well. The Humor Times, okay. Yes, if you go to www.humortimes and look for the menu of political cartoons and look for Mr. Brunel Explains It All, you'll see about 400 of my cartoons. Wow. Dating back. Um, well, I've been doing this strip for 20, uh, almost 23 years. So there's a huge backlog of strips, uh, which is interesting. One of the things I mentioned is this, um, historians love political cartoons, even though political cartoons have a short shelf life. Right. Because they're attached to current events. And when the current event's not in the news, the political cartoon becomes irrelevant. But then it kind of goes into limbo, but then it's dug up again decades later by historians 
if you want to really research a particular era, one of the great ways to do it is to look at the political cartoons of the era because you can really get a feel for what's going on. Right. So this cartoon is sort of my homage to Thomas Nast <laughs> because, as you know, I collect vintage ephemera, and I happen to own a copy of Harper's Weekly that has the very first Thomas Nast elephant in it. Oh, wow. And <clears throat> so here's Mr. Elephant. My character, Mr. Elephant, I think of him as sort of like William F. Buckley, highly educated, elitist, uh, upper crust, who is kind of disgusted by the, the coarseness of modern Republicans. <laughs> but he kind of holds his nose and, you know, goes along with it because he craves the power. So here he's introducing Mr. Woolly Mammoth, who's going to take his place, <laughs> even more conservative than he is. <laughs> And Mr. Woolley Mammoth says, anyone who isn't a rich white Christian male should leave the room right now. <laughs> and there's a, a sort of a visual quote here. Mr. Woolley Mammoth in my cartoon is taken directly from Winsor McKay's um, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Okay. Um, I, uh, he drew a woolly mammoth in one of his cartoons, and I thought it was cute, so I borrowed the head of the woolly mammoth and put it in here. <laughs> But only a real cartoonist uh, historian would notice that. He almost it, there's almost an allusion to uh, Boss Tweed in that. Well, yeah, too. In the first panel, I'm holding up the actual cartoon drawn by Thomas Nast of the first Republican elephant. Right. <clears throat> and and so we also have um, also too is like just as an example of some of your your work that you have here, and oh, I really? remember. You know, yeah, the relationship yeah. between car political cartooning and caricaturism. Mm -hmm. To be a political cartoonist, you have to be good at caricaturing people so that the reader recognizes who you're talking about. Okay. So anytime someone comes on the news that's going to be important, I have to sit down and figure out how to draw them. And so here's some of my more recent ones. I think you recognize who these people are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the boring white guys middle-aged white guys are the hardest to draw <laughs> there's no distinguishing features <laughs> but and, um, and so talk so for, for just from an art just from a cartoonist perspective what do you do for um so from a cartoonist perspective what do you do uh and i remember we talked we talked about this offline once so i just wanted for the for the general public to know it's like you actually have all these images pre-drawn and then you and I, if, correct me if i'm wrong but you have like the body's pre-drawn and the arms separate on a different layer, and then you're able to move them, right? Well, what I do is, uh, first of all, I have the cartoon blanks ready to go with the panels divided up and the logo and everything. Yeah. And then, yes, I have, when somebody important comes along, I have to add him or her to my cast of characters. So I draw the caricature of them, but I draw them without mouths and without eyebrows or eyes. Mm -hmm. And I draw them without arms. So I just have, like, the blank. Okay. So I plug that in. Uh, so when I'm going to do a cartoon, like I just posted one today about Pepe Le Pew uh -huh. talking to Trump, actually. <laughs> and so if you haven't seen that, go to my Facebook page. So I plug them in, and then I figure out who's talking first and who's going to deliver the punchline in the last panel. So it's usually the character on the right of the last panel that delivers the gag. Uh -huh. So i got to figure all that out. Then I do the writing, 
And then after I figured out the writing, then I add the expressions and the hand gestures to go with whatever it is they're saying. <laughs> so that's my process. And it's all done digitally. So because you have to work fast when you're a political cartoonist, you know, right. jump on the news cycle. You can't take weeks and weeks to come up with a cartoon. So and and, and because of because of that, I mean, it's how it's how long in, in like one sitting? Just you've been doing it for twenty years. An hour. Start to finish. An hour. You can make. You can make a, a, a you can make a, a cart and and do you have to? I, I'm just also curious too. Is like, do you have a notebook next to you or something? Like when he's like, "This is going to be great. I got to write this down because I'm." I not do. Gonna I watch the news every night, uh-huh. and one of the downside there, there's an upside and a downside to being a political cartoonist. The upside is you never run out of material. <laughs> I'll never have writer's block. You know, there's always more to talk about than you can get to. The downside is you have to watch the news every day. And, and that's you, where the gray hair comes from. Yes. Right? Yeah, you have to <laughs> follow it on the news uh, on the internet. And so you got to keep your finger on what the heck's going on all the time, no matter how depressing it may be. Yeah. And then, <laughs> so very often I'll have a notepad next to me. I usually watch the news while I'm eating supper. And I'll have a notepad. So, yeah, let's talk about this. Or if I see something like, like, like the Pepe Le Pew being canceled controversy right. or the Dr. Seuss thing, whatever is the hot topic of the day, I figure, what can I say about this that no one else has said? Yeah. Because yeah. don't forget, there's thousands of cartoonists out there. I mean, you'll see very often cartoonists will come up with the same idea because there's only just so many ways. Right. I have more of an advantage. The single panel guys who have to do it in just a single panel, I don't know how they do it. Um, I allow myself four to six panels to expand an idea. Right. So my characters do a lot of talking. And so I can sometimes I can squeeze two gags into the same cartoon. So the top two panels, there's the sub gag. And then the bottom two panels is the big gag. Right. <laughs> so there's gags within gags. But that's why it takes longer to write them than it does to draw them. Mm. Once I've got the writing down pat, then I look at the character and say, what should the character be doing while they're saying this? What kind of gestures? Are they shaking their fist or making a point? Or what what are their eyes doing? And so forth. And when I draw myself, Mr. Brunel, it's a challenge because I have no mouth or eyes. (laughs) So I have to do everything through the eyebrows or the hands, you know, <laughs> to get the point across. <laughs> and, and so, uh, for you know, for, for, from a self-editorial perspective, do you have to change, you know, your looks? You've been doing it for twenty years. Do you look the same? You look the same the whole twenty years. No, actually, if you look at my book, um, copy, my my twenty twentieth anniversary book, I have a page where I show the evolution of Mr. Brunel. Okay. In the, early, in the early panels, in the early years, I had a ponytail. Really? Yeah. <clears throat> and I had pure black hair, but I've allowed myself to get grayer over time. <laughs> Another interesting thing from the historical point of view, like Facebook, you know, so you posted this 10 years ago and they'll bring up a cartoon that I posted 10 years ago. And I look at, you know, that's still apropos today. <laughs> Things do come back. Right. And very often I'll bring up a cartoon that I did nine, 10, or even 20 years ago that speaks to something that's going on right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we're at, so did you want to, you had a couple of things you want to show us quick promo. Yeah. 
No, you're not Jobs. <laughs> uh, after the Capitol attack on January 6th, I did a series of cartoons called No, You're Not Jobs, where it's sort of like a field guide to all the extremist groups and how to tell them apart. And those cartoons, by golly, almost went, they went viral. Yeah. The first one I posted was shared 2,000 times. Wow. Which okay. means it could be I've seen upwards of 2 million people, you know. Right. So there was such a demand for it, I, I created this book. And you can get this at lulu.com. Okay. Just look for No, You're Not Jobs. Okay. The other thing I want to promote, Joseph Citro, my friend, wrote this, uh, The Vermont Ghost Guide. Mm-hmm. And I illustrated 148 drawings of ghosts and monsters that you can find in Vermont by town. Every town has a ghost. And the final plug, I have a solo art show at the Emile Gruppe Gallery Okay. In um, here in Jericho. It goes up on the 21st and comes down the end of April. Several brand new paintings. Because of the pandemic, we're not going to have an opening, but I will be there on weekends in April doing painting demos. Oh. So stop by and say hi. But where cool. Right. Well, thank I've you. My shot, so I'm safe. But <laughs> you better wear a mask. That's right. Yeah, Stephanie said that she loves this, and uh, yeah. So Stephanie, I didn't get to post. I I missed your other comments. So there. By the time I noticed the comments you're making, we're already past the topic. So sorry. <laughs> um, and so so thank you very much, Robert. This has been great, and we probably still have more to talk about. So we'll make sure you, we'll have you come back on. You'll be a, um, just a, a regular, a regular guest. We'll have a, we'll, we'll make sure we always have a, at least a, one Robert show every once in a while. So they're a lot of fun. I, I love to do it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I don't think so. No. Okay. All right. Oh. No, no, no. We're, we're we're live now, so we're uh, we're we're safe. people are people are milling in the auditorium right now, Robert. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> it's just like uh, when I was a teacher, the kids coming into the classroom, and inevitably they'd come from two different group uh, teachers. So half the class would be there, and the other half wouldn't be there. I couldn't start till the other half got there, but I had to keep the first half amused so they wouldn't tear the place apart. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was a balance, huh? Yeah, I said, just sit quietly till the other half gets here. <laughs> <laughs>